0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome
1: to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Matthew Hennessy, who is the deputy op-ed editor at the Wall Street Journal. Also, author of a couple books. This is the newer book. It's called Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. I think I got that right. And then an older book called Zero Hour for Gen X, How the Last Adult Generation Can Save America from Millennials. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, Greg. So listen, this book, the visible hand. It's kind of, for me, like a modernized and updated version of Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. You actually referenced the book in your book, but I remember reading that when I was, I don't know, 12 years old, 13 years old, and it just kind of popped, a lot of things popped for me when I read that. And he is not a professional economist, I don't think. You're not a professional economist. In fact, you say in the book that you've never even practiced business. <laughs> you're like an actor before you became a writer. And I think there's something fresh about this outsider perspective because you say you're a words guy and not a number guy. And if you were a words guy and not a numbers guy, it would be very difficult for you to survive as a professional economist. And then you also write that this book is Dad's Guide to the Market. So maybe tell us a bit about what is the purpose of this book. Who is the kind of target audience and what are you hoping that they're going to get out of this book
0: well i'll start with the last question first the target audience is anyone who is like me or like i used to be which was sort of afraid of the word economics Mm -hmm. i like i didn't know what it meant for a very long time i didn't want to approach it i certainly never heard about it in high school other than I picked up snippets from things I heard adults saying or things I heard on the news that just caused my very humanities brain to sort of shut down. So it's for people who identify with that if they do. I actually think there's an awful lot of people, I'm related to an awful lot of people for whom the word economics itself is like a curtain coming down in a conversation. So there's that. I worried that my kids would very likely be cut from the same cloth I was, and would also suffer from this phobia of not just numbers, but just broad economic concepts. So I wanted to write a little dad's guide to the market for them. And you're right, one of the books that I took as kind of inspiration, although I don't want to make too much of it, was Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, because it really is economics in one lesson. And it really does the job very well for the non-economist or, you know, the person who sort of recognizes that there's a bit of a gap in their education. It's just really outdated. I mean, it's a very old book and as snazzily as it is written, and he was a journalist, he was a wonderful writer. The examples are kind of outdated and it's a bit musty. So I thought, well, there's a space for this. Turns out there's a lot of people who think that they're going to write that book. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it before I set pen to paper, but once you start looking around, there's actually a lot of people pretending or supposing that they can write the beginner's guide to economics in plain English. So that's what I set out to do. And if there was another question buried in there, I forgot what it was, but you could remind me.
1: Well, you mentioned in the book that there was a moment where the scales fell f- from your eyes. And I was in an Uber recently coming from Stanford to Berkeley and the Uber driver said, you know, what do you teach? And I said, economics. And he said, oh, so, you know, what's the stock market going to do or <laughs> whatever? And so people tend to think that it's about, certainly there's a methodology and then there's also a domain. And, and when you had this aha moment where your blindness ended, you realized that in fact, all of us are economist it's kind of like you wake up one day and realize that you're doing physics (laughs) when you get out of the bed and walk to the bathroom you're doing physics in a way right so everybody is an economist it's just a question of whether or not we're doing it consciously and explicitly or whether we're doing it implicitly
0: right that's exactly right i wanted to uh impress upon the types of people i was just describing that there's really not that much to be afraid of. There are some things to be afraid of in the field of economics, and I'm still afraid of them, but the gist of it is very intuitive. And like you paraphrased what I wrote in the book, I woke up one day and I realized that all I had ever been doing was behaving like an economist, which is the basic stuff, the stuff that you learn in the first week of Econ 101, the trade-offs, and to a degree, prices and the kinds of laws of economics that seem so mysterious when your main interest is at theater or literature or something, you have the tools for this stuff. In fact, you wouldn't be able to survive for very long if you didn't have these economic instincts, which is a sort of a way of backing into the beauty of economics, which is that it's not at all a human invention. Maybe in some regard it is. Well, animals
1: have to deal with trade-offs too, right? So I teach a course, I taught a course on animal behavior and it was essentially just economics with various words crossed out and replaced with other words.
0: What kind of animals are um, weighing trade-offs in a way that we would recognize? I mean, apart from the sort of life and death.
1: Yeah, so they're not doing it in a conscious way, but if you're thinking about, for instance, bone density, there's you can have too much bone density or too little bone density, and then you know there's trade-offs. If there's too much, then you know you can't fly, and if there's too little, then you, you know your bones break, and so you know evolution is right. essentially solving a lot of these trade-off. Problems, but animal communication, everything. You said that your kids, whenever you're about to launch into some mini lecture, they know we know already it's all about trade offs. In my class, whenever I say anything, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're going to tell us it depends, right? And I think that for me, economics boils down to it depends. And for you, I think it boils down to trade offs, which is more or less the same thing.
0: Which is the reason why people don't like economists very much (laughs) because you can't get a straight answer. It depends is a very frustrating. Place to live, especially if you've got a a wish list of political outcomes that you'd like to see happen in your lifetime. Well, it depends. Or there's trade offs. It's going to be a very unsatisfying pool to swim in. That's partially the reason why economics has this bad rap as the dismal science, and you know why people like me tend to tune out when I was younger. I had a lot of really great teachers. You strike me as someone who might be a really great teacher, and if I can play a small part in teaching. I wouldn't presume to be able to teach college-level economics, but if I can teach a 12-year-old economics, a 13-year-old economics, I feel like I will have done some sort of a service in this world. I didn't intend the book to be aimed at teenagers, but m- maybe something in the way that I wrote it or the you know examples that I chose uh, lent itself towards that. And I've gotten some good feedback from people that like I slipped this book under the tree at Christmas, and my kid just started poking around in it. And I feel we may not have won the whole battle here, but we've at least planted the seeds of some ideas that might flower down the road. When you do wake up as a grown-up and realize, hey, I do behave like an economist in my daily life, and I wouldn't be able to survive without it. Well, well so hopefully, you know, it doesn't. The book doesn't end up on the the young adult shelf in the bookstore, but it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if it did.
1: Well, well, no, it wouldn't. You point out that when you were in high school, you never had a class in economics. And yet you did learn some important economics lessons. And you highlight this one teacher of yours, Coach, who had this phrase emblazoned on the wall. I really like that because it's, it's a phrase that, you know, similar to some of the things that I'll often say to people. As a parent, you're presumably also teaching your kids how to make good choices. And that is a way of teaching them economics
0: yeah you like to think you're teaching them how to make good choices you know i have a 19 year old now the longer i'm doing it the more i realize that the teaching all happens in the background it's more about how you behave than what you say about how to behave but that's maybe a separate topic yeah i had a great experience in junior high school so some people call it junior high school we call anyway where i grew up in new jersey we called it junior high school there's some people call it middle school i guess in some parts of the country. So seventh grade, eighth grade. And this guy was a science teacher, actually. He wasn't an economics teacher. If they had economics classes, and I know they had economic. there was an economics class you could take in my high school. But anybody who took that class was not someone I was hanging around with. For guys our age, it was the Alex P. Keaton types. I wouldn't have been hanging around with that crew in high school. But this was a junior high school science teacher, and for some reason, he took it upon himself to stencil a kind of a slogan, an inspirational slogan up in the hallway. must have gotten the permission of the principal or something to do this. And it was pretty simple, but pretty profound. It took me a while to realize just how profound it was. He wrote on the wall in the hallway, life is not determined by what you want. Life is determined by the choices you make. And I used to walk past that sign in the hallway every day and just think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I can't think of now that I'm well into middle age, I can't think of a more profound statement. It covers so much ground because we want so many things, but we are naturally confronted with limits and trade-offs. This is the state of the world. This is the world that we find ourselves in, that you can't have everything you want. You can't always get what you want, as somebody once said. In order to get something that you want, you're going to have to generally give up something that matters to you, something of value. It could be money, but it could be time. It could be energy. It could be simply the opportunity cost of being in one place and not in another. It's not about what you want. It's about your choices and your choices are going to determine your ultimate outcome. So while what you want may inform your choices, it may guide you and direct you towards certain behavior. It doesn't guarantee that your life is going to end up in the same place that you wanted it to when you had that thought. So I constantly go back to that Slogan from the hallway, and it is the leaping off point for some of the stories in the book because it's so obviously perfect for this conversation. If I were a younger guy, I might get it tattooed on my forearm <laughs> or something like that. But I just I, too I, late. I, I keep mentioning it to my kids when they say I don't want to it frequently it comes up in, in discussions about wanting to be in two places at once. Say so you want to let's just say go to the dance on Friday but you've made a commitment to do something else. Now we have to pick one and there's gonna be consequences to that decision, right? You are not going to get, if we were economists say, you can't have, there, there's an equilibrium here. You're gonna to have to, it's not just all uh, gravy. You're gonna to have to pick something and it's gonna hurt. And you can look at that as totally unfair the way teenagers generally do, or you can just look at that as a product of the inevitability of choice and the permanent condition of trade-offs. And Wishing it away doesn't make it go away. Dreaming that there is another economic system that we could impose or overlay onto that very difficult decision that would allow us to be both at the play and at whatever the other thing was that I said that I can't remember. It just doesn't exist. It's not reality. Any more than Wishing that you could fly is reality. Like, we're constrained by the laws of economics. We're constrained by the laws of supply and demand and the iron law of trade offs, just like we're constrained by the laws of gravity. We can't simply dream another physical world into existence and we can't dream a different economic world into existence.
1: Well, I think, you know, when you articulate choice and constraints and trade-offs, I think most people would say, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. They might have the same kind of eye-opening experience that you had, but it seems like getting people to understand markets is a little bit more difficult. And you actually described your upbringing, actually in both books, you talk about your upbringing, but you talked about your family environment and your parents and how your father became a small businessman after a life in public service and other activities. And he was able to be successful. So, you know, he was presumably making choices that wound up benefiting the business, but he was still someone who found markets to be perplexing in some way. And I think you make the claim that most people don't really understand markets or appreciate them or have that same sense of wonder that you have about living in what you call a miracle Why do you suppose that is? Is it that complicated? I mean, you don't need to have a complex mathematical understanding to understand the beauty of the market. And there's some simple stories that help to bring it to life.
0: No, it's at once that complicated and not that complicated. If you were to speak to some sort of, who's the Stephen Hawking or the smartest astrophysicist or theoretical physicist who ever lived, we tend to think that that person has it all figured out. They really understand the secrets of the universe. And they could tell you what's happening in the atmosphere on Mars just as easily as they could tell you why a ball drops off the Leaning Tower of Pisa when you let it go. Like There's some relationship there that the best human minds can grasp. For the rest of us, it's a little bit harder, but theoretically, if we were as smart as they were, and if we put in the work, we might be able to understand it. I actually don't think that's true. I think the world is more filled with mystery than any one person can ever understand. And there's no reason why markets should be any different. Um, We have a tendency to reward people who behave as if they understand, for instance, how currency exchange works, or you you could turn on the financial news networks and see a lot of really confident people telling you what's going to happen tomorrow and why, I am one of those guys who doesn't happen to believe it. The markets are very complicated. And for someone who is not even conversant in the language of economic trade-offs, it's essentially Swahili. You know, The people on the financial television shows are speaking in another language that doesn't even resemble your own language. So it's very easy to Convince yourself that either none of it's real. I call this strawberry fields economics. Nothing is real, so we can do whatever we want. We are not bound by any of these rules or these laws. We could print a trillion-dollar coin if we want to tomorrow, and all of our troubles will be over, right? That's one way of approaching it, and we hear a lot from those people. And then there's there's sort of, well, the humbler way, the sort of the, the humility approach, which is to say, like... There's a lot I don't understand about markets, be they financial markets or commodities markets or the restaurant industry or the job market. right? There are a lot of things about all those markets I don't understand and I'll probably never understand in great detail. But I can appreciate, I have a sense of appreciation about what they are capable of, even if I don't understand at a, some sort of molecular level, how they create those outcomes. I know my job in a market. I know what I can control and what I can't control. And I know that it redounds to all of our benefits. These markets are, they're invisible, but we can see their effects all around, which is why I, I titled my book, Visible Hand, y- y- There was a great movie uh, years ago, a German movie, Wings of Desire with Peter Falk, and he's surrounded by angels. He can't see them, you know. He's alive, but the angels are on the screen. You can see them, but he can't see them. And there's a great scene where he says, I can't see you, but I know you're there, you know, and the market is like that. It's like gravity. You can't see it, but you know what it does and you don't mess with it it well you can you i don't mean that as a threat don't mess <laughs> with the market you can't take the screws out of the of the tires and expect it to do what it's meant to do so in the case of my dad was an intuitive economist perhaps like i am and he found himself in the middle of his life like at a crossroads and he started this business a very modest business a bar in a small town and made a huge success of it in a very short period of time. He was 50 years in Marstown, New Jersey. He was about my age. He was 50 years old when he bought this bar and he had never taken a course in economics or business Didn't have an MBA, didn't know anything about anything. Really, he didn't know about first in first out or any of the principles of running a successful restaurant or establishment. He was just flying by the seat of his pants and Through the miracle of the market, right, and uh, through his own hard work, of course, and the timely investments of some real-life angels, he turned it into a a going concern. I mean, it was not just a going concern. It went boffo business for many years and put my sisters and my brother through college. It put me on the path to my life's work. And my contention is twofold. Number one, like many, he was a better economist than he realized. And number two, it's like only in America, you know, there are very few places on earth where someone at the age of 50 with no training and very little experience can launch a successful enterprise and enjoy the fruits of that enterprise in their own lifetime. There may, there are one or two places where you can do it, but Let's just be honest. There's just not that many places where the markets are developed enough and lubricated enough and the spirit of entrepreneurship is in the air to the degree that it is here so that just on a very basic level so that your wife wouldn't say to you, what are you crazy? You're going to do this? You're too old or something, which, uh, you know, Americans love a second act. You know, they say there's no second act in American lives, but there's many, many third and fourth acts and my father's my father's life story proves that it's lucky that it does because i wouldn't be here doing what i'm doing right now if it weren't for that bar i don't know if he would have a thousand percent appreciated all of the lessons that i have drawn from his own life story he wouldn't have begrudged them to me either well you said
1: paraphrasing tolstoy right that everybody's who's unhappy with the market is unhappy for different reasons. (laughs) And you point out that it seems like no matter where you go on the political spectrum, people are discontented with what you describe as the market system. Why is that? Do you think that's always been the case or do you think that it's an artifact of the moment? In some sense, you could say that we've never been more, at least among economists, there's never been a greater consensus around what makes for good economic policy. It's hard you can't really say defend isolationism or central planning you know, at an economics department. But it does seem like no matter which generation you're talking about, whether you're talking about boomers or Gen Z, everyone seems to find problems with the kind of contemporary capitalism.
0: Yeah, I mean you know as well as I do that bad ideas never really die. They go to sleep for a while and then they come, they wake up and they come back to life to haunt us all. And people our age are living through something that we never thought could ever happen, which is a kind of a revival of a bunch of really bad ideas that everyone thought had been laid to rest a long time ago. I'm surprised to hear you say that you wouldn't get anyone arguing for isolationism or central planning i guess maybe you're saying in an economics department yeah that's
1: what i mean I in the economics department
0: many of the loudest voices for industrial policy and central planning and trade restrictions and even isolationism may not actually be economists you're right about that we're seeing i think that the shocking thing is that there's so much agreement On some of those things on right and left, like the thing isn't breaking in the, in the expected way. So you've got people on the people who call themselves conservatives, intellectuals on the right, arguing for all of the kind of policies that 20 years ago would have been standard on the intellectual left. Uh, And that's disorienting for a lot of people, certainly for me. And I'm not keen on it, surprisingly. So uh, I work at the Wall Street Journal. I work on the editorial page there, the opinion pages, and we have a simple motto, which is free markets, free people. And uh, I believe in that. I believe that people ought to be free to make as many of their own economic decisions as they can. I don't believe in a pure libertarian paradise as if such a thing were possible. We live in the real world, not in the pages of a dusty library book on a shelf in Vienna or something like that. Yeah, it's disorienting. The short answer to your question is that bad ideas never die. And it's the responsibility of people with energy and experience to argue against the worst ideas like whack-a-mole. When they pop up, you've just got to smash them down again. There's no other, they don't go away on their own. You've got to hit the mole with the hammer or you lose. So I wonder, if, to what extent do you think that
1: you are dispositionally prepared for accepting this regime, given your Gen X status, right? So in in the book, Zero Hour for Gen X, you talk about the uniqueness of Gen X. I recently interviewed Gene Twenge, and Gen X is seen as this generation that's wedged in the middle <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't get a lot of attention but one thing that she points out was that this is a generation that has lots of resilience and which was more concerned with practical things than the generations that followed and, and so forth and again you can question the validity of a lot of this these generalizations and this data but in your book you do it's kind of a crede uh, asking the Gen X to, you know, rise to the challenge. I think what makes Gen X unique, if there is such a thing, is that we have one foot in the non digital world and one foot in the digital world. I still have my big stacks of books here. <laughs> I'm still reading your book in in paper. You know, I get the paper Wall Street Journal and Financial Times every day. With this book, what exactly? were you intending to do? Were you asking Gen X to remind itself of what made it valuable or how would you characterize that book?
0: Well, the one thing you can say for sure about the people, members of Generation X, Gen X, is that they hate this conversation. They hate hearing about themselves. (laughs) hate even thinking of themselves as a group. (laughs) That's true. But when you, you can take it from me, they hate it. But when you point out to them that uh, the generations that that have come after us, so the millennials and Gen Z born in the 90s, and uh, now some of them even in the 2000s, we will all shortly be working in our offices with people who were born after the year 2000, if we aren't already. When you point out to Gen Xers that these people grew up entirely differently than we did, it's not... Even debatable. The yardstick that I use is that if you grew up, if you had Google when you were in high school, then your childhood was entirely different than mine. And I don't see how anybody can dispute that. When you have the internet, which as we all know is uh, a universe, many universes of information at your fingertips, the ability to answer any question or to watch any movie or to listen to any song now immediately, not delay your gratification, if you can handle that, and just have everything that you want, every urge that you have satisfied now, that's going to change your personality. It's going to change how you view the world. And my observation, I don't think I was the only one who thought of this at the time, was that the funny thing about Gen X is that we thought we were living at the beginning of something because we came of age right as the Cold War was ending and the Berlin Wall came down. It was a very optimistic moment. We had a reputation at the time for being sullen and ironic and weisenheimers, which a favorite word of my dad's, but that's not really how we actually are. We were just kids. And we got tagged that with that label by our older brothers and cousins because we weren't hippies. We came of age at a very very optimistic moment in the life of the world and the life of the country where it seemed like tyranny had been vanquished and uh, that was a great world to be born into. We thought we had vanquished a lot of things actually. We thought that we dealt with the problem of racism. That was a, the civil rights movement was paid for by the time the late 80s and the 90s came along. We thought we were going to live in an economy that never stopped growing because the 90s were just a boom times. So we had a very positive, optimistic outlook on the world. And sort of the caricature that was laid on us was somewhat misleading of Gen X as being these sort of slackers and stuff. I lost my train of thought here, but I'm going to get it back. (laughs) Well, the idea Um, is
1: if this generation is optimistic, if this generation has faith in the political system and the economic system then presumably you're going to be more predisposed to find beauty in something like the market right
0: yeah so i promised that i would find the train of thought and i did so we thought we were living through the beginning of something a brand new era whatever they call the end of history just like the pax americana we didn't realize that we were living at the end of something which was the end of the analog world the end of the world of paper copies of the wall street journal and the financial times that's allowed if you must have it Hardcover books face-to-face meetings handshakes asking a girl out face-to-face television network television appointment television oddly you know as i point out in the book you know as uh, television was supposed to rot our minds and everything like but it oddly enforced a kind of discipline In the sense that if you wanted to watch something on TV, you had to be in a particular place at a particular time, or you missed it. And the knowledge of that created a kind of uh, habits of mind that have been totally lost. Not that having universes of information at our fingertips is entirely a bad thing. Of course, it has many salutary effects and qualities. It's good. I love the internet. I use it all the time. I'm on it all day. I couldn't work the way I do without it. But there's, just to tie it into a little bow, there are trade-offs. And some of them are trade-offs that we may not want to make. It may be too late at this point. My book is five or six years old. But I do feel that the advent of social media and smartphones triggered something in older Americans' minds, a kind of a mania, we got really carried away. And I think it took a little time for us to get a grip. So the 2010s, let's say, were a kind of an out of control period of irrational exuberance around technology, that this was a new way of living, a new way of, well, just a new way of doing everything. And it was all upside and it was all going to be great forever. I think we've gotten wise now. I think most people in their personal lives, in their professional lives, have understood that they have to manage this relationship with this technology. And part of the reason I tried to end Zero Hour for Gen X on a note of optimism was my hope that... Maybe we were all sort of realizing that maybe we'll all look back and laugh at this, how we lost our minds over MySpace and Twitter and Facebook. The context of 2018, if you recall, which is when my book came out, was that Facebook and related services had destroyed our politics and had made it impossible to have a democracy anymore. Now, to a degree, we're still having that conversation. But I think that most people, maybe around that time, started to regulate their relationships with their devices and with their apps a little more consciously, a little more mindfully. And you see this all the time now. People are just dropping a lot of these services, checking out, doing digital diets and all that kind of stuff, trying to get the best out of the internet while not letting it steal our souls. Well, you
1: might think that because you're surrounded by people who are doing that, just like I might think that. Everyone's eating organic food because I live in Berkeley. But if you look at the data, I think most people have not yet gotten to that point, and it seems to be getting even worse. Hmm. You said in the book, if you could say one thing, get rid of your phone or stop looking at it so often. But I think some of these common good conservatives, they might say, look, we can't rely on people's virtue or self-discipline to stop looking at their phone any more than we can expect them to stop taking fentanyl. We need to have the government step in. We need controls. This is the market gone awry. This is an example of markets doing bad things. Do you think that we can resist this through culture, through virtue, through education, or is this an example of the market gone awry?
0: Of course we can resist it. Of course we can. Because I'm in charge of my own house, right? Because I have five children. And, I, and w- one of them, as I previously mentioned, is approaching the age of her majority, but the rest of them are still minors and they don't have any income. So I decide whether they have a smartphone or not. And guess what? They don't. Now, is that fun for them and me to have that conversation? No, it's terrible. They hate it. But I do have some control there. I can exercise some responsibility. I can regulate myself. I don't need the government to regulate this for me. As I said earlier, I believe in free markets and free people. And the reason I do is because I know that when the government gets involved in making those decisions on your behalf or on the behalf of your children, rarely, if ever, is the common good its purpose or the end result. Frequently, it is the good of a select few. And maybe their friends that will be served in that scenario. So, I tell people all the time who say, "Well, what, my kids, they, you know, we ha- they have to have TikTok or else they can't communicate with their teacher in school or something." That you can figure out a workaround. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can imagine the school system demanding that you do in your home. That with a few well-placed arguments, you could deflect. And this is one that most parents, and this is where Gen X sort of, the Gen X rubber hits the road because we're the ones raising the next generation now, right? We do have some role to play in this. And my argument is that if you don't want to live in this world, then you need to cultivate your garden. You need to start at home and create the change that you want to see in the world or whatever. If we all simply surrender and say, well, there's nothing that can be done. You know, obviously we're all going to have to be plugged into virtual reality, TikTok visors to get a high school diploma in five years. Then maybe that's the world we'll get. But if we don't like the world as it's developing, we can do something to change it. But very few of us have the ability to You know, you get people pounding on the table and saying, Congress ought to pass a law. And that's usually when I start to think, I start to hold on to my wallet, you know.
1: Well, I think if Gen X is like immigrants, when they come to a place like the United States, right, they have a choice to make where they can teach their kids their ancestral language and help them become bilingual, or they can just say, okay, I want you to become 100% American. And it seems like we still have a foot in the old country, the analog world, and we can teach our kids to become bilingual, right? So they can understand what it's like to live in a world that's not just continuously on 24 seven connected to the internet.
0: Yeah. And I can imagine millennials listening to this and thinking, Oh, Oh yeah, here we go. Another story about how great it was before the internet came along, but it's not just the internet. It's household appliances, books, obviously, Although curiously, the digitization of books and Kindle and and eBooks and stuff, I don't know how well that caught on. Five or 10 years ago, that seemed like that was really going to, there's a story to be told there. I'm not entirely sure what it is. How come music and movies have all migrated into a digital place and newspapers, sadly, but books, that's a kind of a line in the sand for some people. Well, Because nobody reads books anymore. That's why. Who are you telling, pal? <laughs> so in, in Zero Hour for Gen X, the as I said, this was six or seven years ago that I wrote the book. And the issue that was at the front of my mind then was smart appliances and smart cars uh-huh. and things like that. And it seemed to me that we were rushing headlong into a wired up world with all sorts of very obvious. You don't have to be a Hollywood screenwriter to understand that if all every appliance in your house is connected to the internet, that you're just a few steps away from a social credit system where they can tell you that you're using too much air conditioning or something like that. So I was very nervous about that kind of thing. And I still am nervous about it to a degree. Although, as I said earlier, I feel like people are getting the picture just this week. uh, And by getting the picture, I mean getting the, the sense that there might be some value in retaining a connection to the brick and mortar world. Just this week, the Biden administration is talking again about regulating appliances like dishwashers, the amount of water that they can use, and stuff like that. My dishwasher is a disaster area, and I would give, I I would pay top dollar for a 1987 dishwasher, (laughs) 1980s era dishwasher to be installed in my house. Here in New York, the governor of New York is saying that she is going to ban natural gas. Yeah, we got that in Berkeley. Construction, yeah. So you can imagine all sorts of impositions on your freedom that won't necessarily enhance your consumer experience. These trade-offs you may not want to make. You, you know, increasingly, you may have less of a choice. It may be, These trade-offs may be forced on you. And so when you said it was a cri de coeur, which for my uh, friends in New Jersey, that means a cry from the heart. The idea is that, like, you got to stand up for some of this stuff and you have some market power. You don't have to buy the smart toaster or the thing that vacuums your room and uh, reports you to the authorities is also listening to your conversation. Like, you don't have to buy those products now. You might have some options and you should look into them because every little bit counts. And I think that this argument isn't entirely aimed at Gen Xers because you see among a certain type of millennial, like a real desire. See, the book I wrote was about millennials. They're buying all the vinyl, right? Yeah, the vinyl and the artisanal pickles. The millennials are old now, right? So these arguments are, I don't wanna say they're getting stale because that makes it sound like I don't want people to buy and read my book anymore. But one thing to point out is that the millennials have been replaced by, there's a new kid in town, right? There's a new generation always coming up behind whoever the old generation was. So millennials as a shorthand for annoying 20-somethings is phasing out. The oldest millennials are in their 40s. So I should be careful with my words is maybe what I'm trying to say.
1: Well, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the workplace, right? Because you work in a newsroom and we hear all sorts of stories coming from perhaps some other publications about how the folks who work in the newsroom are rebelling against the people who run the newsroom who are typically older, and I'm thinking maybe of the New York Times right? more than any other. In the Wall Street Journal, you presumably have people from multiple generations operating there. Is there a sense that the way in which the op-ed page is the way in which the newsroom operates is going to have to change given the change in the composition of the workforce?
0: Well, it's important to point out that there is a... Inviolable wall of separation between the news departments and the opinion departments at the Wall Street Journal. It's like that at most newspapers, although the degree of inviolability may, you know, your results may vary depending on the ideological tilt of the opinion writers at your local newspaper. So at our newspaper, we've got a situation where the opinion pages swing right, and that's pretty rare, as all of your sophisticated listeners, I'm sure know. So I can't speak to what goes on in the newsroom at the Wall Street Journal because I don't work there. The opinion pages at the Wall Street Journal are a pretty tight ship, right? Not as many people working there as you might imagine. Certainly the editorial and writing staff is pretty lean. Demographically, It's the same at our shop as it is pretty much everywhere. You got a lot of old people and you got a lot of young people and not too many people in the middle. And that's just the way the generations roll. There's a lot of baby boomers. There's a lot of millennials and gen X is a kind of a donut hole. If that's the right metaphor, (laughs) the valley between two big peaks. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I see. There's not too many guys my age there. There's a surplus of energetic younger people, and then we got some old lions who I hope never leave. Maybe that sounds like I'm being a wise guy. I don't mean it that way. I really hope they never leave because their wisdom and their institutional memory is invaluable. And the nature of this work is that you can do it even when you're older. So... I don't see so much of a generational clash on our pages. The pandemic threw everybody a curveball in the sense that they got used to working from home. So just like in your office or in a lot of people's offices, everybody got the working from home hooks in them and it's hard to get them out. I'm a big office hawk. I think that newspapers and media especially, we benefit tremendously just from the collision of ideas and the crosstalk and conversation that goes on in an office. I really don't think we could do. Obviously, we could do it. People are putting out media products entirely remotely, but I think they suffer for it. Maureen Dowd had a great piece uh, a week or two ago, and that might be the only time you ever hear me say that particular sentence, but it was called The Death of a Newsroom or Elegy for a Newsroom or something like that, and it was just beautiful, and I totally related... To her point of view, because she's older than me, she got her start in the newspaper business in the 70s. And she said, I never would have known how to do this job if I hadn't sat next to some older guy and listened to his phone calls, listened to the way he spoke to sources or to contributors or called to verify facts. You need that kind of learning by osmosis in a newspaper. Now, newspapers may be dying anyway, for other reasons. But I don't think that this should be the thing that kills them. I think that managers need to make a real decision that we are going to have an in-person work culture for the purposes of mentoring younger employees. That's enough. That should be rationale enough for keeping the office open and not succumbing to the pressure from below to make it so that everybody can work in their pajamas and enjoy all the conveniences of working from home. Obviously, there's a new flexibility in the workplace culture that's just not going to go away. Like, it's very hard to take away a benefit when people have gotten used to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I tell my students that the reason why they need to show up for class and participate is not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of their classmates and vice versa. Last question, you know, your background's a little unusual, right? I mean, you were a 28-year-old freshman, I think, in college, and you tried out a bunch of things before going to college, and economics was not your thing. Do you think that this background that you had helped you to perform your role better on the opinion pages? What kind of perspective did it bring to you that might make you a little bit different from the other folks on your desk?
0: Yeah, you can't help but be a product of your life story. My previous life was, as you said, at the beginning in the arts, (laughs) you know, as a young guy, it's not that unusual. I wanted to be an actor in Hollywood. And I went out there and I tried it and I gave it a shot and I did okay. And anybody who wants to look it up can look it up. It's, there's a few things out there that you can find to have a laugh. It's fine. That didn't work out. I changed lanes. I changed direction. Not unlike my old man did. And this is working out too. I think I bring some perspective, of course, but if I had spent my 20s digging ditches, I would have brought some perspective as well. One thing I will say broadly is that I got my education in a public university at the City University of New York, practically free. It was practically free. In fact, one of the semesters they may have, I don't know if they made a mistake or if it was intentional, but I think they might've actually paid me to go (laughs) to school.
1: If they hear this, they might ask for
0: a refund. I know. Well, it's been a while. There might be a statute of limitations on that. And I think that was a great benefit to me, having gone to a, let's just say a non-elite university. I don't mean to suggest that I could have gone to an elite university and I chose to go to a CUNY. I got my bachelor's degree at Hunter College, which not many people have ever heard of outside of New York City. I think that, you know, I'm reading a lot of stories lately about a push to eliminate the requirement for a bachelor's degree in certain government jobs. And you get the sense that this is coming out of that strange intellectual alliance between right and left that we were talking about earlier, that you know you really shouldn't have to take on all this debt burden, go to college, just to get this piece of paper that says you can work in a newsroom. And I totally agree. I wouldn't begrudge, well, I would encourage places like The Wall Street Journal and other brand name media outlets to just look past that kind of stuff. You get into a tricky area because if you have no standards, well, we're entering an era now where objective standards are frowned upon. The use of objective standards in hiring or admissions are frowned upon as sure as the sun rises in the east we're going to get back to a scenario where we're going to need to impose objective standards in all these areas because we're afraid of admissions and hiring decisions being influenced by prejudice so this is just a circle that spins maybe forever it'll spin i don't know i happen to work with somebody who is a very distinguished guy and has gone very far In the newspaper business and does not have a college degree and he is proud of it and he'll tell you about it and that's my boss on the features pages of the wall street journal james toronto is a very well-known journalist with a great following and has lately done incredible writing work that i would refer you all to on the subject of the the manufactured controversy around the ethics of the supreme court Mm -hmm. five or six essays in the last two weeks that everybody should read You know, his enemies say, well, obviously he has no college degree. You can tell when you read him that he's an adult. His fans say, you know, this is the voice of the everyman, and he's smarter than any guy who graduated from Harvard. And I happen to side with them. Short answer, there's no generational conflict on the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. But there are some subtle differences that if you're paying attention, you would pick up on.
1: Well, you also mentioned that there is a sort of a firm wall between opinion and news now in law right facts and law it's kind of hard to draw a really clear line but do you think that those categories the attempt to keep them separate is a battle that's being lost i know plenty of people who cannot stand the opinion pages of the wall street journal but they consistently read the news sections and, and I think it, it's hard to find. It used to be in the, back in the days of yellow journalism, right, there was no separation. And a lot of people argue that we're moving back to a world where there's no separation. Is that a losing battle to keep these things separate? Or is that a battle that just we have to keep fighting?
0: Well, there's no battle. I mean, the battle was lost almost everywhere a century ago. Maybe the separation never really existed or can exist except in a place like the Wall Street Journal, where the opinion pages are uniquely different than the opinion pages elsewhere. All of the opinions at the Washington Post, you could get at the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times, or the, pick your poison, the Financial Times. You're gonna get something at the Wall Street Journal that you can't get at those places. And there are some voices that would stuff a sock in our mouths and, or turn us into a pale imitation of the New York Times. Why our political culture needs that, I have no idea. I understand that some people don't like our point of view. I happen to think that we're pretty fair. We're honest about where we're coming from. We've hung up our shingle, as it were. Free markets, free people. That's what we believe. That's what you can count on. And whoever doesn't like it is got their own agenda. It's my contention. I don't understand why our Major newspapers all need to speak with one voice. I understand why some people want them to, but it would not be good for our country. And I think that if I, or the world, or markets, if that were the case. So I say, I say what? I say nothing, I zip my lip, I say nothing. We can all get along.
1: Matt, thanks so much for joining me. The book is called Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. And then we got this other one called Zero Hour for Gen X. Talk to you again soon.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.